All right, let's bow again together. Father, thank you, Lord, for this privilege to be able to be together to remember your son's uh, death on our behalf and to proclaim it until he comes again. And Father, I thank you for the privilege we have to be in your word. And I pray you'd prepare our hearts so that we would receive it uh, by your spirit and be able to understand and then do what you say. We thank you so much for your, your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we approach Easter, uh, one week from today, I felt it would be good for us to take a look at the crucifixion of Jesus for us. So would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 27 through 50. And today we come to the sobering climax of the book of Matthew. We come to everything Matthew has been preparing and pointing his readers to, inspired by the Spirit. And if you were with us when we went through Matthew years ago, we saw that even before Jesus was born, that uh, that God uh, that God took on human flesh. We saw that an angel spoke to Joseph and explained before the Lord was born why he would come, why he would take on human flesh. Matthew one twenty one, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Right away in the book of Matthew, we have the reason why he came. And we see there also in this, it's the same Jesus who is the rightful king of the Jews in the line of David. He is God the Son who took on human flesh. And we see that purpose was not simply to set an example for us, uh, a perfect sinless example. The purpose of his coming, as we see, was not simply to be worshipped as king, although he was born as such to be king, and he is the king of kings and lord of lords, that the purpose was for him to serve and and to give his life as a ransom for us. Matthew twenty twenty eight. just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came that he might die and bring the forgiveness of sins. Uh, he says in Matthew 26, verse 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He came to die for us. And in the context of Matthew, King Jesus came to his own. Those who were sitting in darkness, they were sitting in the shadow of death, that sin. And with his teaching, he confronted their wrong thinking. He exposed their sin. He revealed himself as the Christ, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, as God, the Son of God, the only Savior. And he called upon them to repent and believe in him for salvation. But the Jews and their leaders rejected him and delivered him up to crucifixion. And having been tried by the Jewish leaders and being found guilty of claiming to be God, by which he is, uh, and... And through their jealousy, we see, they delivered him up to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who tried his best politically to wash his hands of the situation. But Pilate, continually finding no guilt, handed him over to Herod, who found no guilt. And then Pilate, being fully responsible, uh, delivered a decision for, Je- for Jesus' fate to the people who were being manipulated. He delivered the decision to them. You can choose Jesus or you can choose Choose this Barabbas. And they chose Jesus to be crucified. 
So Pilate, a self-serving politician, gave over to the demands and vainly attempted to wash his hands of his guilt, but Jesus was delivered up to crucifixion. And that's where our text begins, but I want to rewind a little bit. Let's go back to verse uh, 22. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him up to be crucified. And this is where we come to our passage. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and his head and a reed in his right hand and they kneeled down before him and mocked him saying hail king of the jews they and they spat on him and they took a reed and began to beat him on the head and after they mocked him they took his robe off and put his garments on him and led him away to crucify him and they were coming out and as they were coming out they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And sitting down, they began to watch over him there. And they put up above his head the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down uh, from the cross, and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, "I I am the son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were casting the same insults at him. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him, or gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his 
spirit. I don't think we remember what Jesus did for us enough. Um, as I was studying this, I was convicted that I don't look enough at the cross. Uh, we look at other pastors that we do need to look at, and we need to be built up in the Word of God. But we need to remember what Christ has done for us. Now, this passage, as I read through it, it's a narrative, and so we're not going to go down and pick out every detail. It's, it's, a, it's a true story, and so we're going to walk through it today. And folks, this is one of the most sobering yet wonderful portions of Scripture. It's a passage in which Jesus appears to be the victim, but actually he is the victor. He is the victor because he will give his life up for us and he will bring through his death the forgiveness of sins and the defeat of Satan. And so then it is a passage that is sobering yet is a passage in which we look back and we praise God for what he did through his son Jesus. Now this is the passage that all of Matthew has been leading up to. All of it's been leading up to this and it's my prayer that we gain a greater understanding here uh, concerning the cross, and then respond with greater honor and praise and worship of our Lord who gave himself for us. It's also my prayer that those who don't know Christ would uh, understand what he did for them, understand their sin, and turn to him and believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. So then let's take a look at this wonderful passage. Now notice, first of all, before being led to Golgotha, uh, Jesus the king he is mocked by Gentile soldiers. He's taken to the Praetorium, that's a Roman headquarters, and he's mocked. Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the Praetorium and gathered up the whole, gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put, on, they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him, and they took a reed and began to beat him on the head. Here we have uh, the Roman soldiers under Pilate's command taking Jesus into the Praetorium. That's the Roman headquarters. And what did they do? Then the soldiers of the governor, verse 27, took Jesus into the Praetorium and gathered around, gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. That would be a group of about five to six hundred men that's the whole cohort that's the whole guard that's the whole roman cohort and what did they do they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and probably this was a old roman's soldier's coat that would be reddish uh, when well used and even would look purplish like we see uh, in mark's account and so what happens and after weaving a crown of thorns they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and don't forget jesus had already been beaten by the Jewish leaders. He had always already been mocked by Herod's soldiers. Uh, Pilate had him scourged. Uh, that's a brutal and shameful whipping with a leather whip with pieces of bone attached, which many people wouldn't even make it through that. So that's already happened to him. And uh, so now we have the whole Roman cohort around him mocking him. Uh, and they're mocking him according to the official charge that he is the king of the Jews, which he is. Now, having put a crown of thorns on his head and a reed in his right hand, uh, which was just the stalk of a tall plant, notice what they do in the middle of 29. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took a reed and began to beat him on the head. And this is amazing if you think about it. 
We have God the Son, the Messiah, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who took on human flesh, the one in whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. At some time we have the Gentile Roman soldiers mocking him, kneeling before him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then we see they spat on him. That's a terrible insult, by the way. And now why would Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Lord of Lords, allow his fallen creation to do this to him? Why would he allow them to do this? Remember what Jesus has told his disciples previously back in chapter 20. Look back in chapter 20, verse 18. Jesus made it very clear what was going to happen. He made it very clear. Matthew 20, verse 18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. He told his disciples, this is what's going to happen, and it certainly is happening. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Folks, this was part of God's predetermined plan, prophesied back even in Isaiah chapter 50. You can turn back, middle of your Bibles, Isaiah 50. You know, it's interesting. I think about how when we trust in the Lord, his word comes to light in our hearts, and we live out the scriptures in a sense and we have God the Son who humbled himself to take on human flesh, living out the word of God as he entrusted himself to the Father who judges righteously. Look at Isaiah 50, verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord... God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let him stand up to each other. Uh, who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. So the Lord is fulfilling the word of God concerning uh, what would happen to him, and he trusted and trusted himself to the Father, the one who judges righteously, to vindicate him in the context of this wicked uh, insults and uh, horrible, horrible uh, mocking. And then notice in our passage, and we know that even from First Peter, he says he did not, when being reviled, he did not revile in return. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously, ultimately that he would go to the cross and bear our sins in his body in the cross, Second, First Peter chapter 2. So back in our passage in Matthew 27, notice uh, in verse 31, and after they had mocked him, they took off his robe and put his, garments, put his garments on him and led him away to crucify him. Just straightforward, led him away to crucify him. And folks, crucifixion was a brutal form of execution that the Romans used. Uh, not only uh, the, now, it was, not only was the actual act of crucifixion a deterrent, there was the procession beforehand, which was a deterrent uh, for crime, deterrent for those who would commit crimes. It was brutal, and there was a pro procession before it, as we will see. And they would take the longest route possible to get to the place where they would crucify them so that everybody would see what's happening. And it would be a visual deterrent. It would be to maximize that. Now, we also know that this was a brutal form of uh, 
of uh, execution that uh, the Romans would not do on themselves, on their own citizens. But there were many Jews who were crucified and many other uh, as others who were. But this crucifixion is different, as we will see. This is a unique crucifixion that none other is and ever would be. So here we see in verse 32, And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who they pressed into service to bear his cross. Now, as they were coming out, that's probably as they were coming out of the city, not the, not the Praetorian, coming out of the city. You see, the place where Jesus was crucified was outside the city. It was a shameful place. It was a shameful place. Indeed, in Numbers chapter 15, verse 35, the law required, the Mosaic law required, that anyone who was executed, that would happen outside the camp, outside the city. And so they would take them on this long route all the way outside. And so as they were coming out, they were probably leaving the city boundary, but they still had a ways to go coming out. It was a place of disgrace and shame. And even the author of Hebrews exhorts the Hebrews who were uh, were tempted to fall away from believing in Jesus Christ. They hadn't yet because they were ashamed. They were tempted to fall away and they were exhorted not to do so in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate, Hebrews 13, 12. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. We're going to be reproached also uh, for following Jesus Christ. But here we see he went outside a place of shame, a place of shame, and he suffered a shameful death. Uh, he despised that shame. He despised it, we see in the book of Hebrews, right? He endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame it was a shameful death, a shameful procession of a would-be criminal, but yet we know he was perfectly innocent, that he was sinless and spotless, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but yet he was being shamed in this. And so this procession is coming on, and they get out of the city, and he's probably lost a lot of blood. He's already been beaten. He's already been scourged. Uh, He's been mocked, and he can no longer hold this 100-pound cross. And so they press into service a man from Cyrene named Simon, that's to carry the cross. And and on a side note, I want to point out something that Mark and Luke uh, share. And it's interesting to note this, that Simon is described as the father of Alexander and Rufus. There's an interesting note there. Look at Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And as you're there, I'm going to read for you Mark chapter 15, 21. I was going to read that. Go to Luke 23, verse 26, and I'll read for you Mark 15. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. This is Mark 15. I'm just reading it for you. The father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. Mark decides to give that information. Very interesting. Then Luke 23, verse 26. And when they led him away, they laid hold of one of Simon of Cyrene coming in from the, from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And there were following him, that's speaking of following Jesus, a great multitude of the people and the women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus turned to them, turned to them, but Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming, um, 
when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? And so we see here that these ladies were probably professional mourners, and they, historically speaking, would follow and try to make a buck at uh, difficulties in, in, uh, in terms of uh, death and uh, crucifixion, someone being, being that's going to die. And so here Jesus reproves them, basically saying they're in great spiritual trouble. Because judgment is coming upon them. And most likely he's speaking of the judgment that would come in 70 AD uh, for having rejected him, as we'll say. So Simon is bearing the cross and he is witnessing all this. He's witnessing them saying, mourning and, you know, saying these things, these flowery things, you know, or whatever it might be. And Jesus reproving them and saying, don't weep for me, but weep for, 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 for your, 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 uh, your daughters and your, your children. And so here he's admonishing those in sin uh, to reckon the reality of God's judgment, even as he is on the way to the cross. So Simon hears all this stuff. And it's my thought, we'll see later on, that Rufus, he's mentioned in, uh, in Romans, and that Simon probably came to faith after hearing all this and seeing all this. And we see that Rufus and Alexander, these were in the initial church, those who were, were, were those who were saved, obviously. And so then we have the Lord sharing this here. And now Matthew, back to our passage, gets to the specific details in bullet points of the events of the crucifixion. Look at uh, verse 33. Let's see here. Actually, yeah, verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink and mingled with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. So Jesus arrives at Golgotha. That's an Aramaic word, uh, which means place of the skull. Um, it's the place where Jesus would be crucified. And it's most like it's the place where the Romans would do their crucifixions. And it's interesting because obviously this place looked like a skull. They called it place of the skull. And that's where we get uh, from Latin the word calavaria, which means cranium. Okay, So at cranium we sing, right? The place of the skull where Jesus was crucified at Calvary, right? Where he would be crucified. So what happens? And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Gall was somewhat of a light narcotic, evidently. Uh, Mark would say it was uh, myrrh mixed with wine. Talked about that in Mark chapter 15, 23. This was given to prisoners to dull their senses. It would make uh, uh, their pain, it would ease it during crucifixion. And it says here, they, that's apparent, it's the Roman soldiers tried to do this. The Roman soldiers gave him that. And you might think these are such nice Roman soldiers, they're going to give him something to ease his pain. Not at all. They're doing that to make their job easier when they drive nails through his uh, hands and through his feet and put them on the cross. They're trying to make their job easier. And so what does Jesus do? After tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. This is God in human flesh unwilling to relieve his own pain uh, by a narcotic here. 
but uh, instead he was taking the full portion of God's wrath. Look at Psalm 69, Psalm 69, verse 20. It's interesting, we gain insight into the heart of our Savior as he is being crucified through these Old Testament Messianic passages. Psalm 69, verse 20. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. We see this was fulfilled in what the Lord did. Back in our passage in Matthew, verse uh, 35, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves. Now when it says when they had crucified him, that doesn't mean he already died. They had put him on the cross. The process of crucifixion had been done. He is being crucified. It's already done. He's on the cross. And so now he's on the cross. He's not dead yet. And they then divided up his garments. Now, it's interesting. I find it very interesting in all the gospel accounts, we do not gain a very detailed account of the crucifixion itself. Could have talked about, you know, how the nails pierced his hands and his feet and how he, he, he hung down and all these different things could have shared, like the movies that come out here. But I believe God gave us exactly what we needed because we are tempted in our flesh to focus on those things which emotionally charge us in a sense. And if you look at some of these movies about the crucifixion, they are very emotional, and we can get distracted from the main point that he died for our sins. And we can focus on the physical act rather than what we will see later on when he actually bore our sins in his body on the cross, which you can't see. That's when he was bearing our sins. You can't see that part. We know it happened. Everything turned dark. We'll see that. And he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's what God wants us to focus on. So it's not that we ignore the reality of how brutal the cross was, but be careful not getting distracted into simply the physical act of crucifixion like the Catholics do, and they stay there. Their Jesus is still on the cross, by the way. So watch out for those Catholic movies about that and get into the Word of God, the Word of God. So here, and when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And again, I mentioned crucifixion was a brutal way to die. His hands and feet were pierced. We don't deny that. We don't ignore that. We see it very clearly in Scripture. I turn to Psalm 22, and again, we have it from the perspective of the Messiah, where we see an, an, a window into the soul, in a sense, uh, of the living God, a window into his personhood, a window into his personhood, better said that way. Uh, Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me, they have pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones, they look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and my clothing for my clothing they cast lots. This was going on right here back in our passage, and when they had crucified him back in Matthew, they divided his garments up among themselves, casting lots. Garments were valuable things, and the Roman soldiers were going to throw the dice, cast the lots to see who would get the garments in fulfillment of prophecy here, in fulfillment 
everything happened according to God's predetermined plan. You can look at, uh, we see uh, in this context that, uh, that uh, in John uh, 19, uh, turn there, John 19, we see the same thing. Now, folks, while you're turning to John 19, just a reminder that uh, to die this type of an execution was being considered being cursed. Uh, Deuteronomy, cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. We see that. Uh, uh, Galatians 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Christ redeemed us from the curse, having become a curse for us. Uh, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So John 19:23 The soldiers therefore when they had crucified Jesus took his outer garments and made four parts a part for every soldier and a tunic and now the tunic was seamless woven in one piece therefore they said to one another let us not tear it let us cast lots for it to decide who whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled they divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots Therefore, the soldiers did these things. This was in fulfillment of the word of God. Everything the Lord did, everything that happened to him was in fulfillment of the word of God. So back to Matthew chapter 27, look at verse 36. And sitting down, this is the the soldiers, they began to keep watch over him there. So they're doing their job. They're taking the stuff, the, the booty, they're doing their job. Now they're going to watch him so that no one would come and take him down from the cross. They're guarding the cross, whatever it might be. And then notice what they did. And they put above his head the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This was the charge that was most likely put around his neck when he was paraded around the city. Now it's been put above his head. We know from John's gospel that the superscription was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. John 19, verse 20. And we also know from the book of John that the chief priests and the Jews had a problem with this. They didn't want that on there. They wanted him to say, he said he's the king of the Jews. But the, the, but here we have the actual charge being what he truly was, the king of the Jews. Then look, uh, we have a brief statement fulfilling more prophecy. Look at verse uh, 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And this is in fulfillment of what Isaiah would write 700 years earlier. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will lot with him the portion of the great. I will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So Matthew, in bullet point fashion, is giving us the account of the crucifixion in the context of showing it was God's predetermined plan and that Jesus was fulfilling it step by step by step by step. This was not a random act that happened. God had planned it, and it was, as we will see, for us, for us. So there were three people crucified that day. Jesus, a robber on his right, and a robber on his left. Okay? And notice in Matthew's account we see uh, the fulfilling of prophecy, more prophecy, as he is mocked by the Jewish people and then the leadership and even the robbers. Verse 39, And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. 
it's hard to think of this from this side of the cross where we've been saved and we love our Savior. It's hard to think of it, but we probably would have done the same thing if we were not saved at that time. We probably would have done the same thing. They were hurling abuse at him. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. And they hurled that abuse, and they were wagging their heads, a, a, a show of contempt. This was the Jewish people, and this was verbal abuse. Their verbal abuse as they're going by, wagging their heads, saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it three days, save yourself. They knew what he said. Even more condemnation for them, by the way. They knew what he said. They didn't believe it. So how evil and satanic are these statements? They are along the lines of how Jesus was tempted by Satan in Matthew 4. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross, right? Same temptation, right? Evil, evil satanic temptation through the people. They're taking God's, uh, God the Son's words. You said you would, uh, we would uh, raise in three days. You would raise this temple. They're taking it and twisting it to try to manipulate and mock and here satanically tempt him. And not only were the common folk mocking and abusing, look at verse 41, and in the same way, that means the way they were mocking, the chief priests also along the scribes and elders were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of the Jews, let him come down now from the cross and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God, let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. Boy, they sure remember a lot of stuff, don't they, that he said but they're using it and twisting it to mock him. How evil, how evil this is. He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we shall believe in him. It's really sad because there are many people who have rejected the gospel and rejected the truth and they want some type of sign and that's the only sign they're going to get is what God did for them. He went in the grave and rose from the dead. And we see that. And so here, again, they continue to twist Scripture, by the way. They actually take Psalm 22, verse 13, and and they twist it. Uh, They they twist it. He trusts in God. Let him deliver himself now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And so again, Satan through these people are mocking and twisting uh, the Son of God as he is suffering for us, as he is suffering for us. The reality is Jesus could have come down from the cross and saved himself. Absolutely. But he didn't do it. And here we have the true Savior of the world who was unwilling to save himself, but gave himself for us. But gave himself for us. We have God in human flesh, the Son of God, who trusts the Father, allowed the Father's wrath, as we will see, to be poured out upon him and all for us. And then notice, the abuse doesn't stop. And the robbers, also who had been crucified with him, were casting the same insult at him. Now remember, most likely the crucifixion began around 9 a.m. And for three hours, uh, there was light. And then as we will see in a moment, from noon till three, there was darkness. Okay, And so evidently, while the light was there before the darkness, you've got all the robbers hurling insults. But evidently, at some time in this three hours, we're going to see one of the robbers actually comes to faith. He comes to faith. And we see this in Luke uh, chapter 23. Turn to Luke 23. He was one of the mockers, but he's come to faith, and now he realizes the reality of what's going on, and he realizes who is actually next to him. Luke 23, verse 39, and one of the criminals 
who were hanged there were swirling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Isn't that amazing? He knows he's going to die, but he believes he's going to rise, doesn't he? Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Isn't that amazing? And it was about the sixth hour. So you have, it's right about right before everything got dark that this second thief uh, or one of the two thieves comes around and gets saved. Wonderful, wonderful truth. Uh, Jesus Christ reveals the truth that he's, he's, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And he says, the, says the, the thief says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And then look at uh, Psalm 22 again, and we gain more insight into what was being said and what was happening to our Lord. Psalm 22, verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip and they wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver you. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Then look at verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me and as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou dost lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, and a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. So you see, mankind, apart from Christ, hates Christ. Hates Christ. And they don't want him to be the king or lord. But Matthew has, in bullet point fashion, revealed the wickedness of man overflowing upon the Son of God as he would die for our sins. And it was all according to the Father's plan. Notice, indeed, he did bear our sins in his body on the cross. Look at verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. That's from noon till 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge he filled with sour, with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave, it, gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So we have the sobering, chilling account of the Son of God bearing our sins in his body on the cross. And it says that darkness fell upon the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. 
You might remember he was been on the cross since 9 a.m. Uh, he's been hanging there, being abused uh, by those around him, suffering. And yet in the middle of this, at this point, darkness comes upon the land. And what's the significance of this? Uh, darkness in Scripture always represents uh, sin or judgment for sin. Judgment for sin. You might remember in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 23, God sent darkness upon the land of Egypt because of Pharaoh's sin, not allowing the people to go. We have darkness clearly associated with man's judgment in Isaiah chapter 13, concerning the day of the Lord. talks about the stars of heaven and the constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil. We see that. Uh, we see in different passages that darkness represents uh, this. We see it in Joel chapter 2 and Amos and, and Zephaniah. Uh, and we know that those who do not come to faith in Jesus Christ will experience the judgment in the lake of fire in black darkness forever, forever. Uh, we see this for false teachers in Second Peter and Jude 13. And so here we have a miracle. We have a miracle that happens. Uh, Luke says in Luke 23:45 that the sun was obscured, or literally the sun ceased. This is a miracle. This is not some lining up of all these different things that happened supposedly, and maybe it was this or that. It was a miracle. Darkness fell upon the land. The sun literally ceased, literally ceased for three hours to give its light. And so during this time, it's what I believe that the Lord Jesus was, as we know, he would do this on the cross, but it's during this time of darkness he was bearing our sins, the sins of the world. Think of all the sins you've committed and all the sins you will. He was paying the penalty for it during this time. You see, the scripture's clear that he would bear our sins, that the sinless, spotless Lamb of God would bear our sins in his body. We see this in Isaiah 53, uh, that surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. And this is when it happens. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, John 1, 29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus himself said he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He talked about the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We have the fact that all of our sin debt was canceled on the cross having canceled out the certificate of debt concerning decrees against us, which were hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, Colossians 2, and nailed it to the cross. Second Peter chapter uh, 2, he bore himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross, when it died to sin and live to God. He has done it, and we will see it is finished. It was done. It was done. So during that three-hour period, Jesus Christ hung on the cross in darkness. There was three hours before, but three-hour darkness. All of our sin was placed upon him. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God bore our sin in his body on the cross. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
The wages of sin is death, and God requires death. And Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, died for us in our place. On that day, evil had its way, yet God was sovereign over it. He had predetermined it that his son would die, come and willingly die and bear our sins in his body on the cross. And so notice Matthew reveals uh, what happens here, that this would happen. Um, where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now in the sixth hour, verse 45, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, right at that that 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And it's in these hours of darkness at this point that he bore our sins. He was separated from the Father. He was forsaken as God the Father poured out the full wrath for our sins upon Jesus Christ. Upon Jesus Christ. A holy God totally forsaking his son Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he bore our sins on the cross. He was forsaken, uh, abandoned and uh, bore our sins, but yet he was he finished the job, as we'll see. And so then, and some of those were standing there when they heard it and began saying, this man's calling out for Elijah. They heard the Eli, Eli part. And immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to, a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will save him. Now, it's kind of difficult, this portion, but I think we'll just walk through it real quickly here. So there are some standing there, and they think when he's saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that he is crying out, Elijah, save me. That's what they think, okay? And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him. Now, we have more information in the Gospel of John because... This is where we see uh, what happens with this drink. Look at John 19. Keep your fingers in Matthew. John 19, verse 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, isn't that great? It's all, it's done, right? In order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there, and they put on a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of a hyssop and brought it to his mouth. That's what I believe is happening here. That's what I was happening here. But at the same time, you have the mockers who are saying, he's calling for Elijah. So they're saying that. But the rest of them, not the one bringing the, 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 the sour wine, but the rest of them, verse 49, said, let us see where Elijah if Elijah will save him. Now, I think the NSB does a disservice to the to this the original Greek because you could say it this way, and I believe it's literally translated this way. Leave him alone. Don't give him that drink. But let's see if Elijah will save him. They're still mocking. They're still mocking. And it's at this point uh, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In Luke, we have his words recounted in Luke 23, verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun being obscured or literally ceased, and the veil of the temple was torn 
in two, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So we have what he says, Father, in thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last and he died for us. Can you imagine that? God the Son dying for us? Entering into the sphere of death for us? The sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And then in John 19, we also have what is said there in John 19. Uh, when Jesus, therefore, received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Tetelestai. It speaks of paid in full. It's done. You would have on a bill if something was paid in full. Tetelestai. It is finished. It is finished. And so then we have Jesus bringing about the finished work of salvation. He gives up his spirit and dies for us. And we'll see in scripture that he would rise on the third day because sin could not hold him because he was a sinless, spotless lamb of God because he was God in human flesh. And so then we have the culmination of everything Matthew has been leading up to from the beginning that uh, he shall save his people from their sins. From their sins. In Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that we've been sanctified through the, through the, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. The reality is through one offering he has perfected for all time all who are sanctified. And their sins and their lawless deeds he will remember no more. It is through this act on the cross that we receive the forgiveness of sins. You see, folks, our problem is sin. That's our problem. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you're willing to admit you're a sinner and that you need salvation, that you deserve God's judgment for your sin, but that God judged his son instead, that he bore the full wrath of God on the cross for sin. And if you'll turn to Jesus Christ and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cry to him for salvation from your sins, and he will save you. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And why would he do this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you have everlasting life? If you don't, turn to Jesus. If you do, praise him for what he did for you. Remember what he did on the cross and remember as we'll see this week that the grave could not hold him, that he rose from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what your son Jesus has done for us. Forgive us for being so overwhelmed by our own thoughts of our own lives and the daily this and that, uh, that we get so distracted from what you have done through your son. We praise you for your son Jesus. We thank you for him. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Father, I thank you that he has paid it all that there's nothing that we could ever do and nothing that we can do, but Jesus paid it and it is finished. 
Lord, I pray for anyone who's not saved that they might turn to Jesus now and cry out, Lord Jesus, save me. And Lord, for those of us who know your son, because we believed by your grace, Lord God, I pray that we would not forget uh, what you have done through him to bring about forgiveness of our sins. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.